0: Alright, so good morning. Um, it's day 79 for our revival talk. So Jesus, come and use our time well. I ask that you would just begin to awaken us and show us who we are. That you would restore us to our original intent and design, not only as individuals, but your, your church. Your church design, the house that you're building in this hour, we're asking you to restore that. We want to be the Book of Acts Church. We want to see a generation and a billion soul harvest, multi-billion soul harvest come in. And we want to be the conduits of what you do. And so that's our prayer. I talk a lot about it. It's been kind of fun. In world. In Bible Lit, in the first few days, I, I always talk about um, when we get into Genesis, I get really excited. Because in Genesis, we lay the foundation for understanding how everything works, and I kind of pair it up with Romans 1. Because if we don't understand God's design for us, the world, the planet, who we are as presence oriented creatures, then we never come into our own identity and we stay bent into the creature in every sort of way. And so it's really key for students, for our generation to understand. That there's only one place that I can look to find out who I am. There's only one that holds destiny and, and my future. And so, you know, the world, Paul lays it out in Romans. I'm going to read a little part of Romans because it's kind of fun. And this is what I pair with Genesis 1. In one twenty out of the mirror version, he says, God is on display in creation. The very fabric of visible cosmos appeals to reason. It clearly bears witness to the ever-present sustaining power and intelligence of the invisible God, leaving mankind without any valid excuse to ignore him. I always love that because the questions come up, Well, what about so-and-so in this country that hasn't heard? You know, God isn't a God that can't be found. He's a God that if you ask for him to reveal himself to you, he will. And so by the very nature of how this whole cosmos and this world is put together, he says, we're not, we don't have an excuse not to look around and say, okay, who did this? And in every creation story in every culture is trying to answer this question of who am I? Why do I exist? What's my purpose and how did I get here? He says that mankind knew him in a philosophical, this is the church for the last uh, probably 2000 years, philosophical, religious way from a distance and failed to give him credit as God. They're taking him for granted and lack of gratitude, veiled him from them. So Paul sets up the equation in Romans 1 for why the world is the way the world is, because that's a big question for everyone. And for a lot of the generation, I'm reading journal questions from yesterday about what the Bible means to them, and I'm reading why their worldview is so skewed. So when we ignore him, and we kind of uh, you know, descend into our head, and we become logic-based, and we don't look at um, creation or the one that made us, he says, they're taking him for granted. They, their lack of gratitude veiled him from them. They became absorbed in useless debates and discussions which further darkened their understandings about themselves. Their wise conclusion only confirmed their folly. Their losing sight of God made them lose sight of who they really were. You know, there was a reason why even in Old Testament, God said, look, you can't go marry the Canaanites guys. They sacrificed to Moa. They burned their children on the altar. They're, um, worship services at the temple turn into orgies. And if you marry a woman in that culture, you're going to bring that woman and her culture into your home. And you you can't do that. And so there was a reason for the separation even then. He says, their losing sight of God made them lose sight of who they really were. In their calculation, the image and likeness of God became reduced to an corrupted and distorted pattern of themselves. Suddenly, a person has more in common with creepy crawlies than with their original blueprint. It seemed like God abandoned mankind to be swept along by the lust of their own hearts to abuse and defile themselves. Their most personal possession, their own bodies, became worthless public property, property rather. Truth suppressed became twisted truth. Instead of embracing their maker, it says their authentic identity. They preferred the deception of a distorted image of their own making, religiously giving it their affection and worship. The true God is the blessed God of the ages. Hey, he's not defined by our devotion, our indifference. You know, when you get into the garden, I love doing Genesis with the students because when you get into the garden, it all just kind of falls apart. And what you really see with the temptation of Eve is essentially shame comes in at the garden. Okay, because, it's, because what he's really saying to her, he introduces the concept of shame. The enemy does. Shame is the foundation for pretty much all sin. Because it's the thing that tells us that we are something different than who we are. Because shame says I'm defective. The original blueprint and design says that I'm a creation. I'm a person created in the image of God who is a presence oriented creature. But the minute shame comes into the picture, there is a distortion of the image. And so when the enemy says to her, he says, did God really say? She looks at it and says, well, it could make me wiser. It could make me more. The thing that he really did with her was they had everything. These are two people in the garden who walking and talking like we're talking right now in the garden was normal, normal everyday conversation for them. And some part of them, when the enemy came in into perfection and says by the way you're not enough do you know you could be a whole lot more you're not complete you're not enough what you are right now is defective and wrong you could actually be God yourself the temptation was to be more and he introduced the very thing that would be the place that the enemy would use to create the biggest distortions and lies and religion and the house of religion that has been built today has been built on the lie of shame. Shame, by virtue of what it is, says that there's something wrong with me, I'm defective. So when we experience, when we get into Cain and Abel, it really gets clear. But when we experience you know, the things we do, when the family unit breaks down, I did a poll the other day and I said, how many people are living with the same two parents that gave them birth today? out of 33 raise their hands. I'm not a mathematician. I'd say this about 10%. So when you have a radically redefined landscape and a fractured culture, shame is already part of that fallen nature. It's the core, but we've been redeemed from that. Okay. But if we don't know that that exists, then we don't know. We won't know what's driving everything as a man thinketh he is. So if I, I will always manifest what I believe about myself. You know, I use a lot of examples in my class just to illustrate that, you know, I talk about if I told my daughters who are beautiful and highly intelligent, that they are stupid and ugly, they will grow up believing they're stupid and ugly, right? And the movie pretty woman, when she gets asked the question and one scene about why she became a prostitute, it wasn't like she said, Well, Susie was a nurse and Sally wanted to be an attorney and Ella wanted to be a veterinarian and I wanted to be a hooker. What she said was the bad thing stuck. And so mama said to her, honey, if there were 51 men in a room and 50 were good and there were one bum, you'd find the bum. And what he was essentially, mama was saying was she was validating this very truth <clears throat> but essentially when shame is the bedrock and the core foundation in my heart that was introduced at the garden but Jesus has already paid for that he paid for a right identity and a restoration to original intent and blueprint the enemy introduced the concept that you're not enough and so if i believe that i'm not enough i am going to manifest my not enoughness and i'm going to look to the creature like paul says to define me it's the same thing that happened with the prodigal and the kid that stayed home having not felt like he was enough in his father's house metaphor physical all of it he left to go find his himself to go find an identity it's easy not to judge what people are doing when we realize that they're living out of a false identity. They do what they do because they're manifesting what they believe. And so if they cycle through bad relationship, bad relationship. And the thing is, I, I use other examples. I'm like, why does the battered woman not leave? All well, the students think about that. Well, she's afraid, right? She's so afraid of the radically unfamiliar territory of truth and righteousness and freedom because the only thing she's known is false identity and bondage. She's radically afraid of what that could look like. And we all are. And the enemy's investment in shame, which shame tells us, one, I'm defective. Number two, it tells me that I'm separate from God. So think about it. Our prodigal goes out does everything that that all of us probably did at some point in our life, right? His shame is already telling him that he's a piece of garbage and everything he does confirms it. So that's where it gets, it gets literally the things that wire together, fire together, wire together in our brains. It literally changes the way we think about ourselves. And we know through brain science today that my thoughts actually create RNA strands which means literally my thoughts can change my DNA that no one is bound to their DNA. I'll give examples. So-and-so be, well, grows up alcoholic family, beaten, beaten, uh, lives in terror. Another person, same thing. This one comes out, this one goes right back into doing what they were doing. What's different? And usually they'll say, well, they made a different decision. Yes. But they also changed their perception of who they were. Their perception of what happened changed. And they were able to apprehend. That's what repentance is. Repentance is really about restoration to original intent and desire. The reason sin is a big issue and that grieves God is because he knows that as I live out of a false identity, I'm going to reap the consequence of the identity that I've actually been manifesting. It's like, I'm doing self-sabotage, right? And so when they look at that example and they say, okay, well this one manifests as something different, perception is reality, okay? I use a funny example. If I look at everybody in the room and I run out the door and slam the door and I come back in, I said, "What what do you guys think happened? And they're like, you were mad at us. I said, okay, I need to apologize to you at this point, right? Yes. Why? I said, but what if I told you that I had just gotten the worst stomach virus on the planet? And that if I didn't run out of that door, I was going to be doing whatever that stomach virus wanted to do in the classroom. That's the truth. I didn't intend to do anything to harm you at all. But even in telling you the truth about what happens, I still have to ask you to forgive me because the part that needs to be healed is your perception. So at that point, I say, will you forgive me for running out the door, not saying anything and leaving you guys sitting here in an anxious place, thinking that I'm really mad. And of course, knowing the truth, they would say, of course, and we would have a great laugh. Perceptions are realities and the perceptions that we form as children become the anchors and kind of the rudders in our life that steer our inner thinking. So that when we have places of rejection and abandonment and um, lack and all of those things at the beginning of life are for me being the ADD child who was always in trouble, his behavior was always off the chain. I could never control it. I was not remotely, I didn't, I didn't, nobody had the stuff to deal with what I was dealing with at that time. So everywhere I went, I was told there was something wrong with me. I'm telling you, there's something wrong with me didn't start there. It started in the garden with Adam and Eve when the serpent basically said to Eve, you're not enough. So the greatest weapon that the enemy introduced in the fall is the concept of shame and telling us as the creation that we weren't enough, which would set us up to look to complete ourselves and to find our enoughness and something other than God. And what Romans 1, the reason I paired that with Genesis is because Romans says, essentially, my paraphrase, guys, you didn't look to me. You believed everything else around you, like our prodigal, he wasn't looking for God. He believed that he was supposed to feed pigs. He believed that he was supposed to be Uh, man whore. He believed that he was supposed to have licentious living. He believed all of those things. And what he's basically saying in Romans is, when you give shame, it's full place in your life. And you embrace the lie of the enemy and of the false identity that, that, that the enemy uses the shame to keep reinforced. Think about every sin and every addiction and why we stay there. Because when we do what we do, we feel the shame, the part that says I'm defective, something wrong with me. And when we feel that shame, it's a painful thing to feel. It's excruciatingly painful. And shame only goes in two directions. It goes outward, when we get to Cain and Abel, we see that. Or it comes inward as self-contempt. So if I'm sowing self-contempt, what is that doing to the way that I think about myself? What Romans is telling us is that guys, when you give yourself over to not seeing me the way I see you, when you abdicate the creator and you abdicate your, the original blueprint and design of your life as a presence oriented creature made for God, made to live in his presence, Romans is saying, when you abdicated that, and when you believed the lie, my paraphrase of shame introduced at the garden that you are less than and not enough. When you did that, you looked to the creature and you bent into the creature to tell you who you are. Good morning, Miss Anderson. And I will pray for you. And I love you. You're awesome. Um, so that's what he's saying. So that's why when prodigal comes home, what does father do? He runs with the robe and a ring because the first thing he knows that has to be restored is he's looking at this son and he's saying, you have lost your blueprint, dude. You are my son. You're not an orphan and you're not a prodigal. There goes my lights as usual. Um, Love those timers. You're not that, you're a son. So he runs and puts the ring on his finger and the robe on him because the first thing he wants that kid to know as he's coming back home, I'm gonna talk about how how God saved a generation in this, is that you're a son, not an orphan, not a prodigal. I'm telling you the biggest group of prodigals right now are not ones that left home not knowing God and not knowing the Father's house. They're the ones that grew up in the church and they left because they're disillusioned. I read about it every day about what this generation sees as they've watched the fractured culture play out. I had a student ask the question, why are there so many divorces? It's a very good question because we've gone so far past the blueprint and we've gone so far into our own selfish place and we do what we do because we're in our desperation. Here's the thing, in the garden, part of that curse and when the enemy introduced shame and introduced this not enoughness, the enemy's biggest weapon was to set us up to try to find ourselves. okay? And when we, that not enoughness is always saying we're not complete, no matter what you add to me, take our media culture, take a pornified generation and you get that on steroids. I'm never enough. So the enemy joins with my own shame and reinforces that lie and keeps me driven. Why do prodigals stay? Because they don't ever escape their shame. Their shame keeps reinforcing and their behavior reinforces the false identity and they stay in it. And Romans one says, if you guys stay in it too long, you're gonna get turned over to it. And not only are you gonna get turned over to it, it's gonna progress. How do we get to a sexually fluid, pornified generation that we have today? Because we've so migrated so far from original intent and design primarily in this culture through religion. Religion has been the enemy's most powerful tool because religion and shame are married and they are tethered together. Why? Because religion says you got to get it right in order to be accepted. you got to get it right to be connected to God. The lie of shame says that you are separated from God. The biggest lie the enemy propagated was the concept of shame and my separation from God and my not enoughness with myself. So essentially, if I don't think that I can connect to God or that whatever I do in my shame says I'm not with him, I'm not connected, I'm separate from him, there's nothing left. The creature is always going to be driven, the created is always going to be de- driven because we are presence oriented and because we are made in his image. We were made with a passion to know my purpose. We were made to want to know why we exist. We were made to know why we. what our, what our mandate is on the planet. What am I here to do? All of the destiny questions are part of design. So you can't, the enemy distorts the design because he, through shame and through all of our own activity, he reinforces that lie all through our life. And that's how we end up with prodigals. The kid that stayed home, right? And that didn't go the prodigal had the same problem. His was religion. I'll tell you what religious is the biggest shame sham on the planet and the enemy's gotten a lot of mileage out of it because he's with it as roman one says it's basically propagated our own vain thinking it's been the thing that propagated the self and everything about the self so that everything in our western christianity is about me and so enemy plan was really good on that one because if i make everything about me then I don't make it about the sacrifice that was made for me. I stay living in shame. I stay living in my not original intent and not my original design, and I live out of a false identity. Biggest investment that the enemy ever had in the garden with telling Eve she wasn't enough and introducing the concept of shame was that he was able to build a house of religion that would so be married to the shame that was already in the creature that I would, he would create an organization, a body of people, millions and billions of people who would strive to try to find out who they were and continually in another person in the created. And the only way we come out of our bentness into the created is to look up. And that's what I told the students. You, you have to understand that in the entire Bible, Our design is a undergirding truth through all of it as a presence-oriented creature who is made in the image. So everything that man does, we go through the Old Testament, is a product of the shame and the lie that they believe that they're not enough. That's why they go for power. That's why they go for corruption. That's why all of those things exist. And the only way back to be restored The good news, Jesus reconciling, restoring all things is to call us out of the bentness into ourself and into the system and are being tethered to a world system into looking at the creator. So when I listen to what a generation for the last 20 years says that has been raised in the church about why they don't believe, it's because they've watched this thing play out where their parents and people and others have all bought lock stock and barrel into a system that they see as fake and phony and having zero power. I hear it all the time. So they're like, it's a show me generation. If everything that I've ever learned about Christianity in my nice little cute youth group, and I'm not condemning all those and not saying there aren't people that aren't godly. that are trying to pull us out. My point is this, When somebody writes that the world is bad, that divorce is bad, and that they look at all the stuff that's played out in their life because we've strayed so far from original intent, they don't say that, I say that, their conclusion is, why would I want your God? Everybody that says they they love him and have him, I'm watching their lives fall apart. I'm watching them look like everybody else. I'm watching them go to church. I'm watching them, be tethered to the system of religion and perpetuating that whole thing of trying to get it right. When, well, when I get to that place where I realize I can't get it right, they're still stuck there. So if I can't change me and God can't change me and obviously he isn't changing my parents or those people or all those people, what do we have? It's the setup for the greatest revival on the planet. It's a setup for glory. The enemy came in, starting at the garden, introducing this concept that I wasn't enough, that would drive me to find myself in everything but God and to become more distorted as we go, as Romans 1 says in my thinking, and be so bent into and, and literally in bondage to trying to find identity and life from another that the only solution is the restoration of all things, is going back to original attempt wherever the kingdom of God when Jesus said the kingdom of God has come cast out devils raise the dead right and healed the sick why because the rule and the reign of the government of heaven wherever the kingdom of God is ruling and reigning the curse is being undone we live in the reality the reality that the curse can be undone so if you want to save a generation and save your children, we have to have something to give them that looks a lot different than what they've been looking at. They've watched their parents go through hell, everybody divorce, everybody do everything, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera, and they don't believe that the gospel has any power because they're looking at it and saying, if that's what it is, I don't want it. That's why prophetic revelatory church A church that is a habitation of glory and a people who are releasing glory on the planet is the only salvation for the generation. They are a see me, I have to see it, feel it, touch it, I have to know that it exists. That's why the religious house is coming down and the house that God is building by the spirit of God that is prophetic intercessory and contains and holds glory is the thing that is going to change the planet. He leaves us in this place. He said, I've left you to your devices and this is what you've become and the only rescue is heaven. There is no other way for our kids and the next generation to be anything different if we don't have the glory of God. If we don't have glory on the planet, there is no change. And that's God's investment and in the mandate of heaven of this revival that is covering the planet. It is the rest it is a love revolution restoring people's identities and capacity and returning them to original intent, enabling to live out of a new place that they've never lived out of. As they experience the power, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, and the glory of heaven. If they aren't going to be impacted by tangible glory, they will never, ever look again. Not ever. You know my point. My point is they have to see something radically different. And we have to become that radically different thing that they see. Because power, anointing, love, glory, all of those things has to be tangible and it has to look like something. Otherwise, we have nothing to offer them. Nothing. I hear kids yesterday saying, I want to believe, but I can't. I can't because of what I see. I want to. I think there's something to it. Well, honey, if you've been doing religion your whole life and the enemies have this beautiful construct called, um, you know, the devil's construct called religion, which has kept everybody in bondage to all of their sins and all of their everything's because of shame, um, um, that's like, it's an institution. We're talking about a worldwide institution and the throne of heaven is taking down the throne of religion and it's toppling every religious devil and every religious throne that has been erected on the planet. And the true king of kings and the glory of heaven is invading the earth. He is coming with the real he is coming in all of His glory and splendor. He's raising up manifest sons and daughters who will be releasers of glory, of love, and they, they will change the face of an entire continent. And it will happen through suddenly's redeemed time. Jesus is going to do in this much time what would take a culture a 100 years to have, have taken place. We look at what it looks like today. I'm telling you, it could be different tomorrow. How does does a nation turn in a day when the glory of God descends on a nation? It changes. The long arm of redemption of Jesus is really long, and he's not freaked out. He's not flipped out about how far we've gone on our own and, and this edifice we've built to religion, he's not surprised. He's not caught off guard. He knows that he has the answer. And he knows that in bringing this, the revival and returning the glory and releasing glory on the planet, he knows that people will flip on a dime and that everybody around me is one encounter away from being the most radically different person in the planet. And that's what we need. We need glory because in the glory, there is nothing of the curse that can remain in me. In the glory, every false identity has to move out of the way. Nothing can stand in the glory of heaven and remain in the government of the world. When the government of heaven and the glory of God is released, that's why it's not an option. We don't have an option to say we don't want to do revival. It's kind of messy. Fine. Let your kids go to hell in a handbasket then. Because the only thing that's going to save this generation is the glory of God being released through manifest sons and daughters and the, and through suddenlies and through fires and hubs and fire hubs across the world. This end time tsunami revival is the hope and it is part of what has been built into eternity. It's not a surprise to God. It is the redeeming power of heaven that is on steroids and the power and the glory of heaven to change things in an instant to change a nation, to change a culture. Stop thinking so small. He doesn't want to just change your kids. The glory that's deposited in you and the living habitation that we are is for the nations. It's for the world. It's for the billion-soul harvest. God has not been mocked and the enemy's plan to so distort us and to so tether us to the lie that we are less than and that our only route for salvation is to find it in my job, in people, and everything in the world system. God is not caught off guard by the enemy's plan. His plan has always been, and they're not equals. And glory does in an encounter and dismantles what the enemy has done for 2000 years. Do you see what I'm saying? Glory dismantles in a moment what the enemy has built in the house of religion for 2000 years. Glory restores us to our intent and our design. And if we want to see a generation saved we have to understand what restoration of all things look like and that the kingdom of heaven, wherever it is manifest in glory and through us as a habitation makes everything right. It is the undoing of the curse. And just because you can't picture it, just because we're so radically tethered to the things that are familiar And that we've had this house, this edifice of religion, be the thing that we all grew up in that was so inbred in us. Don't think for a second that being touched by God's glory can't change who you and I are in a moment. He is going to flip a bunch of religious prodigals on a dime and they will lead a revolution of love and glory on a planet Do not look at what you see. Revelatory, intercessory, people accessing heaven and the mandate of heaven and being the habitation of God's glory is what will change this world. Focus on that. Love Jesus with everything in you, go for everything that's in him. Ask him to display glory. And make you a habitation of heaven. And I guarantee you that every foot, every step you take on the planet will change the atmosphere and the constitution of that very place. And dismantle every stronghold that has kept everyone in a region, in a home, in a nation in bondage. Come on, Jesus. So Jesus... We recognize that you're restoring all things. This is your mandate, not ours. We recognize that you're not going to do it without us. And we recognize that what we look at is not what we need to be looking at. That the unseen real is more tangible and real. And we ask you to manifest your glory. Show us your glory. Manifest the habitation of heaven and glory through us. And let us be a conduit of radical tsunami wave change of a nation in a day that tomorrow, even America could be a nation worshiping at the feet of Jesus. That's not a stretch. It could all happen that fast in an accelerated time when God's redeeming and multiplying and doing in a month and a day, what would take 25 years, 100 years to do, his glory is so much larger than anything the enemy has built on the planet in and through our church and world. And he can transform a nation in a day. And you and I are the answer to that question and to that release on the planet blessings. Love you guys. Love to hear your comments. Share it if you like. Um, I love having this conversation. So just let me know what you guys are thinking and um, we'll continue to pray into this one and do it. Blessings.